Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, David Crow. Joining me in the studio today are Hannah Murphy, City reporter and our in-house cryptocurrency expert, Philip Stafford, editor of FT Trading Room, Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and from across the pond in New York, Rob Armstrong, our US financial editor. This week, we'll be discussing a push by the big four auditors to get into cryptocurrency, a derivatives deal in Europe, Brexit blues at RBS, the search for a European investment banking champion, and the naughty banks in the US, which are being punished by investors. So Hannah, you've been writing about the big four auditors who are making a push to get into cryptocurrencies. What's it all about? So you've got KPMG, PwC and EY all hiring a lot of blockchain and cryptocurrency experts particularly to start offering auditing services to companies involved in the sector. So that's companies that either hold cryptocurrencies as part of their portfolio, so crypto hedge funds or traditional funds, but it's also cryptocurrency companies and startups such as cryptocurrency exchanges, crypto mining firms, for example. So you've got EY saying they've got more than 150 clients worldwide. PwC have said they've employed about 400 experts in the space. And KPMG say they've got several dozen funds that hold cryptocurrencies, as well as some exchanges globally. So why are they getting into it now? I mean, I thought the cryptocurrency bubble had well and truly burst. You're right. Cryptocurrencies prices have slumped from their mid-January peaks And that's put a lot of pressure on the industry recently. It's largely to do with worries that mainstream adoption hasn't taken place as fast as had been expected by some. The sector's viewed with scepticism by mainstream finance. There's been worries over fraud and manipulation. But the big four argue that even if the hype dies down, the prices come down, that the technology behind cryptocurrencies called blockchain will still be used in the future. So all this time and resource that they're putting into it will actually help in the future when it comes to auditing blockchain proper. They believe that, for example, some companies may end up issuing their own private blockchain because blockchain can be used to sort of share encrypted data on anything from medical records to money between companies in a secure and streamlined fashion. So the big four, no stranger to reputational risk. What are the particular risks of getting involved with this nascent industry? So as you mentioned, there is a reputational risk, particularly around the money laundering piece. So because of the anonymity afforded to those holding cryptocurrencies, it has been linked to crime and money laundering. Also, there's the fact that as yet there's no global standard and there's no sort of global regulation for cryptocurrencies. 
So there's not a clear way in which they should be valued, they should be audited, whether they even count as an asset. So auditors themselves are having to come up with ways to value the assets and to account for them. And finally, they're quite nuanced as assets in that they're very prone to sort of wild swings and prices on exchanges vary from exchange to exchange. So it's really a very immature market at this stage. Well, thank you, Hannah, for updating us on that story. I think one thing we can agree on is now the big four are involved. Cryptocurrencies are decidedly less cool. I'm now joined by Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, to talk about Brexit blues at RBS. So what has RBS been doing that makes us think they're more nervous about Brexit, perhaps, than other UK banks? Well, there's been quite a lot going on at RBS in the last week. It was last Friday that they reported their third quarter results, as most of the big banks did that week. But unlike the rest of them, although their underlying results were actually pretty solid, there was a lot of attention on a £100 million impairment charge that the bank put aside to deal with expected losses that it linked to economic uncertainty, which everyone knew what they were talking about in this case. Partly, this is a technicality in the sense that it's to do with new accounting rules called IFRS 9, which force banks to recognise loan losses as soon as they expect them, not waiting until they've actually come through. The thing that's notable is that nobody else has made the same warning. We had Lloyds Banking Group reporting their results the day before, and their chief financial officer sounded, if anything, pretty confident they were seeing no signs of deterioration in the market. Ross McEwen, who's RBS's chief executive, has pretty much admitted that he is more cautious than some of his peers. Given the state of RBS a decade ago, you probably can't really blame him for that. And in a way, he's got less to lose long term from being cautious about it because of the way that these losses are recognised if Brexit turns out to be fine they can just write back those losses. Whereas if you go in bullish and things then turn sour, they might have had to take lots of losses all at once down the road. So HSBC saying that they actually did try to be cautious at the start of the year, they took a 200 million or thereabouts impairment, and they say related to the same sort of thing. But certainly Lloyd's out there seeming to be the most bullish of the bunch. Yeah, so... As mentioned, the Lloyds CFO the previous day had said that they were seeing no signs of deterioration across their loan book. And if anything, they were showing signs of confidence with evidence that they're kind of preparing to increase their share buybacks next year, in contrast to RBS, who've also got a really healthy pile of excess capital, but have been very cautious about committing to any more capital returns before they know what's going on. And what does this mean for the sort of central question for RBS investors, which is when will the bank be fully reprivatized? Well, the uncertainty does make it fairly unlikely that we'll see any more sales of the government's stake, which is currently around 62% before Brexit. That was pretty much acknowledged by the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the, the fiscal watchdog during the budget on Monday. The government sold around £2.5 billion of RBS shares last June. And originally, I think they would maybe have liked to get some more done this year. The OBR had originally budgeted for around £3 billion before next April. But shares in the bank have fallen 14% since June. The government and the bank have made clear that no one expects them to actually make a profit compared to what they put in to rescue it in 2008. It wasn't an investment in a traditional sense. But they do have to justify getting value for money 
And when RBS's results in the meantime have actually been pretty solid, it's very difficult to justify that it's value for money losing even more than they did last time. In the longer term, however, there were some more optimistic updates with the treasurers finally put an end date by which they plan to finish selling the whole remaining stake. They expect to raise around 20 billion by the end of the 2023 to 24 financial year. So there you have it, RBS standing out for being more prudent than the other banks. What a difference a decade makes. Nick, thanks. Now joined by Philip Stafford, the editor of FT Trading Room, who has a story this morning, the European Commission coming out and saying it will grant European banks access to clearinghouses in the UK, even in the event of a no-deal Brexit. So, Philip, what does this mean for the banks? Well, the genesis actually comes back right from the few days after the referendum. And of all the things that people were worried about in the EU, they focused on clearinghouses, which are normally just utilities that process and risk manage thousands of derivative deals worth trillions. They're important because it goes right to the heart of financial stability and your ability to see what's going on in the market, to actively manage it if you have to. And for a bank, this is pretty much your biggest counterparty these days. People don't like doing bilateral trades. Central counterparties as clearinghouses are officially known are where it's at. So as a result, it becomes quite a politicised issue straight off. And what the EU had always left open was the question of what happens to the UK once. The UK is the centre of it in the global market. The strange oddity of the whole thing was that for the EU, it was their banks that would suffer the most because people use all the UK ones all the time and that's how you save all the money. So what the EU have come out this morning and said was pretty much inevitable because something was going to have to be done. They said we will allow the EU banks to access the UK and everybody has said thank goodness the sense has been seen. The problem has been that the whole issue has been subsumed under the broader political discussions. Nobody has wanted to say anything. At this point, the regulators have more or less said, you know what, the time is getting short. We do need to give people some reassurance. So it sounds like a bit of a mess, frankly, and and strange that they've left it this late with the clock ticking on Brexit negotiations. How did they get into this situation in the first place? As I said, it was actually Francois Hollande, the then French president, who brought it up. This actually is a longer issue than just Brexit, because London had always been a big centre for trading in euro instruments, whether interest rate swaps, securities, the currency itself. There was a certain amount of annoyance that London, despite not actually being in the eurozone, had it all anyway. The eurozone crisis itself created a few incidents that just generated a lot of ill will between people in Europe and the ECB and the UK, maybe some of the UK commercial companies like LCH. And Brexit then, this whole thing erupts again because previously with the UK inside the EU, at least Euro regulators could have a look at it. Once it's out and all the business is gone, the rules don't actually allow Europe an awful lot of leeway to look into London. And this all of a sudden became a problem literally overnight. So City breathing a sigh of relief, Europe breathing a sigh of relief, you're saying, deal done for derivatives, we can all move on and forget about this. Not quite. They are breathing a sigh of relief, but it's temporary. The European Commission, Valdis Dombrovskis, today said he didn't specify, and I think people would like to know how long these permissions would last for. Our own sense is probably only a few months. The issue goes back to the point I was just making, that Europe's rules don't really allow it to oversee somewhere overseas. So they're changing their rules. So they want to give themselves a little bit more breathing space for the rules to come in. 
and then we will change it. Unfortunately, those rules are complicated. There's another row brewing. I won't go into that here. So it might take a bit longer. So we might end up with a series of temporary permissions. It just goes to show that it's entirely possible for the EU to end up in a sort of tangle over negotiations and in a, a sort of limbo zone as well. Well, thank you, Philip. We look forward to you returning to update us on that other row. Thanks a lot. I'm now joined by Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, to talk about the search for a European investment banking champion. Stephen, why does Europe need an investment banking champion? Well, this is a big matter for debate among CEOs, politicians and regulators at the moment. Obviously, people running European investment banks are very much pushing this line that the European governments and corporations do not want to purely rely on either Wall Street, the big American banks, or increasingly maybe Asian banks, you know, people coming in from China. They need their big homegrown champions that can help them issue sovereign debt, fund acquisitions and expansion across the world. And there's also a certain amount of political prestige attached to having a very large international lender. Now, the last two banks that can really try and claim this mantle as a European investment banking champion are Barclays and Deutsche Bank. And the difference in direction of them couldn't have been laid more bare last week when they both reported results on the same day. Barclays did very well. The CEO over there, Jess Staley, has really bet the house on the markets and trading unit, and they reported both gains in equities and fixed income. Whereas Deutsche Bank, led by Christian Saving for the last six months, had plunges in both of those markets. And it really looks like it's a sinking ship over there. Staff are very demoralized. And increasingly, it's looking like Deutsche will have to do something quite drastic to turn its fortunes around. So we did a piece looking at which one of them stood a chance of becoming this European investment banking champion. At the moment, it looks like Barclays is the only one there. Okay, so let's start with the good news story for a change. Barclays, drilling into the numbers there a bit. Is it really back to the gung-ho days for Barclays Investment Bank? Well, This time last year, we were sat here reading the death rights of Barclays Investment Bank. They just posted three straight quarters of terrible trading revenue. It looked like Jess Staley's bet on the investment bank and his trading unit wasn't paying off. And sure enough, an activist investor appeared on the roster calling for that unit to be shrank back. But what a difference a year makes. Now Jess Staley has a big smile on his face. It looks like everything is paying off. So things can turn around very quickly. What they'll have to do is put together a proper string of good performance to show that it consistently matched the American banks in trading revenues whilst avoiding any missteps, any more misconduct scandals that obviously they paid billions for in the past. And so obviously the mood inside Deutsche far less celebratory at the moment. You had a story this week on some choice words that the CEO had for his employees. Give us a gist of what went on. He was on a call with his managers to discuss the disastrous third quarter results. And he kept getting asked about this widely assumed merger with Commerce Bank. Is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? Should we be worried about our jobs? Because obviously, whenever you merge two big companies, a lot of the cost savings come from job cuts. And he lost his cool a bit on the second question. And he shouted out bullshit twice, you know, being constantly asked about the merger by staff who were saying it was distracting them from doing their own jobs and and their own performance. You know, it was a fun story, but it's also a very serious insight into what is going on at Deutsche Bank. You know, the very fact that his call with top managers was dominated by speculation about a merger shows that it is distracting and overshadowing the work that the bank is trying to do to put its house in order. So it really is a tale of two banks Like I said, it's not mission accomplished yet for Jess Staley at Barclays. 
And it's not the end of the road for Christian saving over at Deutsche Bank. But certainly it was uh, very unpleasant for the German lender this time last week. So here you have in Europe some sort of will among CEOs, politicians, and indeed certain banks to create this powerhouse. The US investment banks must be quaking in their boots. Not really. Both Barclays and Deutsche have fallen by a huge degree. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but they are shadows of their former self in fixed income and equity trading. The US banks have been increasing their market share year on year. They have greater profitability. They have a more supportive regulatory framework and they are able to attract the more talent and pay higher bonuses because they don't have the same constraints that are placed on European banks. So really what banks over this side of the Atlantic are doing is squabbling over sixth and seventh place at the moment, which is about the last ranking in the investment bank league tables where you can actually generate a decent return on equity enough to justify the continued existence and and paying all these incredibly well remunerated investment bankers and traders. Okay, Stephen, thank you. Joining us now from across the Atlantic in our New York bureau is Rob Armstrong, our US financial editor, here to discuss what has been a torrid week for the US banks. So, Rob, tell us, how are banks doing in this stock market correction? Well, there's banks and banks. Let me put the broad bank sector into three categories. Great big banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. Smaller banks, the regional and local banks, many of which are traded on the stock exchanges. And naughty banks, banks that have reported third quarter results that have not met Wall Street expectations. The big banks are hanging in there, not underperforming the wider market, The small banks are underperforming the wider market significantly, and the naughty banks have absolutely been taken to the woodshed by investors. And why are small banks getting hit harder than the big ones? The small banks have all of the problems that the big banks have, or I should say all of the investor worries concerning the big banks, but they don't have any of the offsetting virtues the big banks have. So... There's three big investor worries about bank stocks today. One, loan growth is not very good despite a strong economy. Two, the costs of deposits are rising faster as interest rates go up than loan yields are, so interest margins are compressing. And three, credit quality, which is pristine right now, can only get worse. Now, the big banks face all those worries, but they also have big Wall Street and fee-generating businesses that can offset the effects of basically the credit cycle, whereas small banks are just basically plays on loans, interest margins, and credit quality. So they're completely exposed to these three investor worries. And you describe them as naughty banks. So tell us which naughty banks have fared the worst. Well... That story really started a week or two ago when Bank OZK, formerly Bank of the Ozarks, had an overall reasonably good third quarter report, but noted that two large real estate loans had gone bad and the bank had to take fairly significant write downs. Now, Bank OZK is a very aggressive commercial real estate lender. It's based in Arkansas, but it makes loans all over the country. It's a high flyer. The stock's been up. The assets on its balance sheet have been really rising. And people figured what goes up must come down. These guys have been aggressive. Let's run for it. The stock is down, I think, a quarter. 
That is 25% of its value since it reported. There's been one or two other small banks that have also had credit events. Those have gotten smacked. Probably the best performing bank stock in America, Silicon Valley Bank, reported very solid results, but its loan growth slowed down a little, but was a tiny bit less than what people expected. But even that tiny disappointment, that bank got absolutely whacked. And this story of very small misses versus expectations leading to big declines in price reaches into the fintech area. First Data, the data processor, reported results on Monday morning, just barely missed expectations, brought down guidance a little bit because of foreign currency effects. Stock got taken down 17% today. So the penalties for being in finance and failing to meet expectations have been severe. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Hannah, Philip, Nick, Stephen and Rob. And thank you too for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.